Well, I'm not sure what you all did on Memorial Day this year, uh, just, just a few days ago, but I spent six hours in Forest Park uh, running with 150 of my closest friends in the Stumptown 50K Marathon. And yes, 50K, that is 31 miles, and with a lot of, of hills and downhills and rain showers and mud, and it was great. It was great. I know, you know, right now you're sitting and wondering what would possess someone to do such a thing? Who would waste their whole day and their, their young body on something like that? It gets worse. I'm hoping to run 100K this end of, by the end of this summer, so just, just double that, that 50K. And now, now, if I was just a fool for running 50K, now you're thinking I am insane. I have gone mad. And maybe even thinking, gosh, he is absurd. It's unthinkable to do such a thing. It's illogical. Who does that? Who subjects their body to that kind of torture? I guess I do. You know, that, that word that I use, absurd, it, it's an interesting word. We use it in, in many different la- ways in the English language. It, it, has, it has various meanings. But, you know, we'll often use it to describe someone like Bill Gates. Bill Gates is absurdly rich. Or, or the president of the United States, that the president has an absurd amount of power. You know, we can use absurd derisively. You know, that, that person, that individual is absurd, it, 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 a term of derision. Or we can use it in a way that feels kind of unimaginable. I had an absurd amount of fun. Right? We, we use it in various ways. And in that way, this idea of unimaginable, of stretching our ability to think, that is how I want to think about that word this morning. When we push our logic to its limits. Because what I want us to consider this morning is that the gospel that we confess, the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we hold dear is absurd. It presses our logic to its limits. And I want us to consider it from two angles, from the book of Philippians, chapter 3. The first angle is that this is an absurd gospel of the apostle. And second, that it is an absurd gospel of the gospel. So we're going to be looking at Philippians 3 this morning, which can be found on page 952. Uh, If you're joining us, I I had preached through the first two chapters of Philippians in April, and and we are picking up over the next two weeks Philippians 3 and chapter 4. So reading from Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read the whole chapter right now from Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Like I said, if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 952. Philippians chapter 3, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Well, Paul begins, as he often does in the book of Philippians, by reminding them, Philippians, rejoice, rejoice. Paul sees his imprisonment as no hindrance to them finding joy in the Lord. And friends, that is our job as well, to rejoice. It should be no hindrance to the Philippians either. And in finding their joy, Paul can then issue to them a warning. You see that right there in verse 2. Immediately following, calls, uh, Paul, uh, Paul, following his call to rejoice, there's a warning issued. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And, and what our Bible doesn't pick up with, if you have the NIV, what the NIV doesn't pick up is that what actually what he says, he, he repeats the word three times. It's like he says, beware, beware, beware. He's, if we were to read it, how it reads in, in the Greek, it says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. And what that's doing for us is, you know, Paul couldn't write in bold font or bold print. He couldn't write in italics. That's, that's Paul underlining for us emphasizing this, beware, pay attention, watch out. And what we are meant to pay attention to is what comes next, because what comes next is what gives us the information we need to know that these people that he is speaking of are dogs, are evildoers, and are mutilators of the flesh. In verse 3, he goes on, 
but he doesn't do it how we might anticipate. You know, typically what, what someone would do, if they're going to tell you what to watch out for, they're going to tell you directly, watch out for this. But Paul does it a bit more indirectly. He, he goes kind of more of a, a, a positive example. He's a bit more, more winsome. In verse 3, he, he starts off, he says, he says, for it is we who are the circumcision. And what, what he means is that, that there are those who are claiming that circumcision is still necessary as a prerequisite for coming to God. That's a familiar tale. We, we've, we hear this in the New Testament, that some still believed that you had to be circumcised before you could come to the Lord. And what, what Paul is saying is that, no, 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 that's Old Covenant language. That's Old, in one sense, Old Testament language. But we are the New Covenant. No, no, we are the circumcision. We are those whose hearts are now circumcised for Christ. And then he goes on. He says, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. See, what what Paul is saying is that we no longer need a mediator. You know, in the Old Testament, there was mediators. There was those who went in between the people to God because the people could not come directly to God. But what, what Paul is saying is that's not true anymore. We don't, have, we don't need a mediator. We have the Spirit. We boast in Jesus Christ. He is our confidence, not our works, not what we can do. Our confidence is in Christ. And see, I think, I think for us, this, this would have been enough. Yes, Paul, we agree with you. It's not our flesh. It's not our works. It's Jesus. Amen. Where is the potluck? But what Paul wants to do for us is he wants to push in on this point about confidence in the flesh. He wants to, he wants to press on it to its breaking point. So he, he begins, he floats a hypothetical. He, he says, it's not according to the flesh, but what if? What if it were according to the flesh? Well, well let, me, let me give you my own example. That's what, what Paul's going to do. He says, consider with me for a moment that, that if we're only right with God based on what we do, I'll be the first test case. And we, what, what does he say? He says he was circumcised on the eighth day, the day a, 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 a Jewish boy was supposed to be circumcised. His, his parents nailed it. He says, I'm from the people of Israel. And if you've read Harry Potter, he, he's telling you he's a pureblood, right? There's, there's nothing, nothing wrong with his. He's a full Israelite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of two tribes to remain faithful to the Lord's covenants when the, when the nation was split. He says, I was exalted amongst my people. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was a perfecter of the law. He followed every little jot and tittle. And Paul was zealous about his faith. And he, he saw himself as pleasing God when he persecuted the church. No one could bring any fault against him because he followed the law perfectly. You know, if Paul were preaching that message, he would just let the room sit in silence as they all wondered at Paul's accomplishments. 
Paul's accomplishments are things that you and I can only dream of. You know, I mean, Paul is saying he has made it to the top. It's, it's the Supreme Court judge who has a perfect record, who went to the right law school and is now on the court. You know, it's that NFL MVP on top of his game, done everything right leading up to that moment. It's, it's the super famous. It's those who are uber famous, who have everything that they desire. What Paul is saying is that his fame and his star did not just burn bright, but Paul was ascendant. He was rising through the ranks. He was reaching the top. And if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, what I want you to do is I want you to think about the wildest dreams you have in your life. Think about the wildest desires, the lar- greatest desires that you have. Making millions, becoming famous, being adored, doing everything, going everywhere, possessing everything. Just let your imagination feast on those desires. Answer all of them in your heart as yes. And this is what Paul had. Paul had reached the top of his game. He had achieved everything that you could think of in this moment. But as Paul begins to speak again, as the silence no longer hangs, all of his accomplishments come crashing down with the brutal force of a gigantic and crushing wave. Look at verse 7. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of of Christ. All the fame, all the fortune, all his efforts, all the met desires, all of it came crashing down because of Christ. As one pastor put it, he said, what Paul once cherished as treasure, he now saw as deficits. What Paul saw in his life is that everything he had built his life towards and for were now marks against him. These were now strikes against him. They were loss. And this is all of his life work. All of his ambitions and his plans and his purposes were now considered loss, wiped away, all gone. Paul continues in verse 8 to underline what he just said in verse 7 when he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. See, Paul is pulling every layer off. He is pulling everything away, every accomplishment away. And as he takes everything off, what he sees at the end is that he's left with Jesus. What Paul's accomplishments did in his life is obscure the true reality that it's all about Jesus. It's not just those accomplishments that, Paul, that, uh, that obscured Jesus. What Paul is saying is that he actually found hope in his accomplishments. He found hope in the work that he was doing. But now he finds hope only in Jesus. He saw them as gain. He once considered his works as gain, but now he sees them as loss, that they were actually marks against him. And... Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. What we're tempted to do is we're tempted to see gain, our gains, what we're tempted to see as gains are actually marks against us. See, Paul looked at his religiosity, his, his stance as one who stood high above all the rest, and now he saw it as a deficit to his account. 
See, for us, what this looks like is legalism. Paul's religiosity for us now looks like legalism. See, legalism, it's, it's a difficult term to understand because it doesn't just come down to a definition. You know, legalism has often been seen as defining your, your good works as earning you salvation. And in one sense, that's true. But if I asked most of you in this room if you believed your works earned your salvation, you'd probably answer no. And if it was that easy, then legalism wouldn't be a thing. If we could just say, no, I don't, I don't believe that. Okay, great. But if I listen to how you talk, and if I listen to where you, your hope is, what might begin to surface is a subtle form of legalism. Because legalism is a danger to all Christians because it infiltrates our thoughts and our minds in ways that, that we just don't expect. See, Paul is saying that, that when he was a Jew, I mean, he's, he's always a Jew, but when he was practicing, a practicing Jew, he was, he was pr- a proud legalist in that tradition. But now he's saying all his works are nothing because of Christ. Okay, so, so how then? How does legalism creep into our lives in ways that are hard to recognize? I've got a few ways. Uh, it's, it's one of the ways, it's, it's when you find confidence in things, not in the gospel. Here's what I mean. You know that reading your Bible every day doesn't earn your salvation, but you do feel like it keeps you in his favor. You do feel like it keeps God having a smile on his face towards you. You know, you feel better about praying when you've been reading your Bible because you've been spending time with him. It's like you, you've, you've earned a little bit, so now God's going to listen to you more. Maybe you look at your stellar church performance. You haven't missed a Sunday in years. God surely must be happy with me because I, I come to church all the time. Maybe you love to do philanthropy. You love helping others. I've got to serve the poor. God, God loves when I do those things. Now listen, none of those things are wrong, right? None of those things are bad. But what is our heart towards those things? Do I see it as earning favor from God? Maybe that's not your biggest struggle. Maybe one of the things you do is, is you just you look at others. You, you look at what you don't do compared to what you do do compared to others. So, so maybe you're someone who doesn't drink alcohol and, and you see people who drink and you think, well, at least I don't do that. Or at least I don't watch the movies that they watch. Or I don't vote the way that they vote. I haven't cheated on my spouse like that person. And your heart is lifted above others because of the things that they do that you don't do. Surely now, God must be pleased with me. I've earned his favor because I've behaved rightly. Or maybe what you're in danger of is you're in danger of creating new laws like the Pharisees did. See, you would never say it out loud that people must obey these laws to be Christians, but in your heart you wonder about them. You wonder if someone can be a Christian and support Disney because of their gay agenda. You wonder in your heart if someone can truly be a Christian and vote for a Democrat or vote for a Republican. You wonder about, are they really Christians, though they don't support my nation like I support my nation? Or or maybe you wonder about those, are they truly Christians because they don't interpret Scripture the way that I interpret scripture? See, the danger with this type of legalism is it shapes the Bible in our image. We begin to define what the Bible says. 
Or, or finally, maybe your legal, legalism is more of a danger of duty, of a danger of duty. This is certainly mine. You rightly recognize that because of the great love and because of the great debt that Jesus forgave, that, that we must now serve others. So you do everything for the Lord, but it's not out of love. It's out of duty. It's a duty that is devoid of love. See, maybe you serve in children's ministry. You greet people at the door. Say hi to new people. Give yourself to the work of the church. You visit the sick. You call people. You make meals for new moms. You give yourself to others, but it's out of duty. There's no delight. There's no love. See, this is legalism because we cannot sever duty from love. Yes, we must do these things for others and care for others, but it must be done from a heart of love, not from a heart of this dry duty that thinks I am now earning favor from God because of the things that I do. Jesus did not die for us out of duty. He died for us out of love voluntarily. See, church, we're always in danger of legalism in one form or another. Like I said, the last one is my danger. It's my difficulty. I don't know where, where yours is, but we all struggle with it. We are all susceptible to legalism. It's why Paul reveals his accomplishments and then shoves them all in the garbage. See, these mean nothing compared to knowing Christ. These are all at loss compared to knowing Christ. And, and again, like I said, you should, not dis, you should not be discouraged from reading your Bibles or praying or serving children's ministry. We need more volunteers. We, you should not be discouraged from those things but what is the heart? What is the attitude that is motivating these things? Because that is what Paul is writing against. These are all good and desirable things, but if you begin to think my salvation is tied to my works, my good church attendance, then you're, you're at a loss. The gospel is not about what you and I do, friends. The gospel is about what Jesus did. It's all about Jesus. See, that's what Paul wants. Paul is saying he wants Jesus. He wants all of Christ. Are you beginning to see some of the ways that this gospel of the apostle is absurd? It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we accomplish or what we gain. The gospel of the apostle is all about Jesus, that he is our gain. His gospel, Paul's gospel, makes much of Jesus, and his gospel makes little of us. And once Paul recognized that all of his life, all of his accomplishments were lost, he was actually able to see now what he gained. In gaining Jesus, he gained much more than he could have ever bargained for, and so do we. Look at, look at verses 9 through 11 with me. Paul says, right after he says, I may gain Christ, now he's going to tell us what he's gaining in verses 9 through 11. He, he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what we gain in Christ is threefold. We, got, we get one thing from each verse. In verse 9, what Paul is saying is we gain justification. In verse 10, sanctification. And in verse 11, glorification. And now your obvious question, Jeff, I don't see any of those. Okay, but this is, is what we call systematic theology. Is we, we begin to systematize 
topics under certain banners. So this idea of justification is what Paul is saying when he says that he is found in Christ not having a righteousness of his own, but that which is through faith. So Paul is telling us that his righteousness is from God. It is given to him from God. What he's speaking of is justification, that that we are justified before God, not based on what we do, but based on what Jesus did. That's why it's not a righteousness of his own, but of Christ. And in Christ, we are justified. So that, that term, justification, is a legal term. It's a right standing. Paul is saying that because of Jesus's righteousness, now Paul can stand before God in right standing. God will no longer condemn him for his sins because he has a righteousness that's not his, but is Christ. And Christian, good news, when we come to know Christ, we are justified. That's what the Bible says. Immediately and forever, you are justified before God. And the rest of your Christian life is a working out of that justification in sanctification. Sanctification is what Paul is speaking of here in verse 10. Sanctification is the work of making us like Christ. Paul says he wants to know Christ. And, 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 and to know Christ is to know his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings. And now let's be clear. Paul is not just saying he wants to know about Christ, which is one way we could, we could understand that word know. What Paul is saying is he wants to know Christ intimately. Like the Bible talks about Adam knew Eve. We know that's much more than just Adam saw her and knew her name. No, no. Paul wants to know Christ intimately because by experiencing him, he's becoming more like him, more like Christ. You know, we've thought thought a, a lot in this study of Philippians about suffering, but we haven't talked a lot about this idea of knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. See, Paul said he knew about the resurrection. He's speaking of our experience of Christ's resurrection. And that's a, what, what our minds are supposed to call ourselves back to is this idea of baptism, that, that when we were baptized and raised to this new life in Christ, that we have, been, we have been buried and we are raised, that we have this new life in him. And to know the power of his resurrection is what Paul is saying is that he wants to become more like that. He is being shaped by it, by the resurrection, by his baptism, by his life in Christ. What Paul, what Paul has in mind here in verse 10 is the Christian life. But the Christian life is about knowing the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, being conformed to him in his death, being made like Christ. See, and we, and we will continually be made into Christ until we leave this earth, which is what we get to in verse 11, which is our glorification. When Paul speaks of somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, Paul is speaking of the certainty, the certainty of the final resurrection, where he will receive his glorious body. And he sees this as gain. Brothers and sisters, Paul just laid out the Christian life in three verses. Justification, who we are before Christ. Sanctification, our life knowing Christ and becoming more like Christ until our death. 
when we are raised again with Christ in glorification. We receive our new bodies with him. All of these Paul sees as gain. And aren't these so much better than the things he had listed earlier? So much better that in Christ there is gain. So, this gospel of the apostle is absurd because not only do we bring nothing to the table, but we're given new blessings. The gospel of the apostle is that we gain Jesus' righteousness. We're made like Christ, and we will be resurrected. And it's because of nothing that we did. Nothing that we did. But what Paul is, is wary of and what he's aware of is that the Philippians may have the wrong view of him. They may think that Paul's already done that, that he's already reached perfection in this life. He's already been, you could say, sanctified. That's why he gives us verses 12 through 16. Look what he says. He says, not that I have already obtained all this, not that I have already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's oversimplified point in these verses is that he's not perfect, neither are we, and we should pursue all of these goals together. See, that that image he paints of taking hold of what Christ first took of him is a picture of the loving response of the believer. We recognize that you and I brought nothing to our salvation. We brought nothing good. God saved us. He made us to believe. And now we are seeking to take hold of him because he first took hold of us. But notice Paul's encouragement in verse 13. I'm seeking to take hold of it but I've not yet taken hold of it. He's not done it yet. He's pressing on. And in verse 14, he lays out the goal. The goal is to win the prize. Friends, Paul is unveiling the Christian life. God has taken hold of us, and our life pursuit is to take hold of him. However, be encouraged because, brothers and sisters, we will never achieve that goal in the way that Christ has taken hold of us. We will never fully forget what lies behind. But our aim is that we will pursue these things together. And then Paul goes on in verses 15 and 16. He gives us our marching orders. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. See, Paul's reminder here is what we've already been thinking about throughout this book. He's telling them to to be united, share the same mind, be one, be together. And and he says, hey, some of you might think differently about some things. That's okay. Let's just walk in humility and God will bring us together. He's he's very clear. It's okay. Sometimes you're going to think differently. But if we walk humbly, if we hold to the gospel, we can still continue on together. We can allow our differences not to divide as long as we hold on to the gospel and agree in Christ. And as we live with one mind together, we are to look to one another for
for encouragement and growth. See verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. You know, Paul right here is laying out the principles for discipleship. He's saying to the Philippians, follow my example, though it's imperfect. Follow my example and follow others who do the same. Follow others who follow Christ. See, the vision for discipleship is, is walk with others who walk with Christ. Help others follow Jesus. This was Jesus' master plan, right? At the end of his life, he had given his life to 12 guys. And one of them, you know, it didn't go so well. So at the end of his life, Jesus has these 11 guys. And he says, guys, here's what I want you to do. Go and make disciples. Go and do what I have done with you. His last command was for them to make disciples, which would mean that his disciples were teaching other people to make disciples as well. So we are at all times to be following those who follow, help others follow Jesus. Okay, so let's get real practical. How do we do this? How do we help others? How do we follow others and help others follow Jesus? How do we be a disciple and also make disciples? Well, one easy way, this is just going to be an easy one for all of you that you'll be hearing more of over the summer and leading into the fall, is to participate in a community group that we're beginning this fall. Put it into your calendar that at least twice a month, you're going to commit to regular fellowship with 10 to 15 people in this church in a community group. It's a really easy one if we just get that into our calendar. Spend time together in those groups, getting to know the other believers that are in this group. And then, and then go out to coffee. Grab, you know, get someone, go out to lunch. Get to know them better. Learn more about one another. And, and, and there's more, right? There's more we can be doing to grow in our discipleship even now. So if you're, if you're someone who's been at this church for a while, if you've been a member here for a while, make an effort to get to know the new people. There are a lot of new people, myself included. Invite them out to lunch. Go to coffee with them. Get to know them. Ask them about their life. Ask them about their story. Ask them about how they came to know Jesus. Help them to feel welcomed here. And not only that, build a relationship with them. Discipleship can be intimidating. It, but it's only intimidating if you think you need to be in a certain place to help others grow spiritually. But everything I've just said, oh, that's just being another Christian. That's just being an encouragement to one another. But so much, because so much of discipleship is just helping each other follow Jesus. You don't need a master's of divinity. You don't need any formal training. You just need to be someone who's willing to take an initiative in the lives of others. I'll give you a couple of easy ways. You know, Trevor often will recommend books from the pulpit. Uh, buy two copies of those books and invite someone to read through that book with you. Say, hey, let's, let's go through a chapter a week or every other week or whatever your schedule allows. Let's read this book that our pastor encouraged us to read. You know, what we want to do is we want to normalize getting together so that when visitors come and spend time with us, not only are they welcomed, and, and friends, we do a great job at welcoming people, but we take the next step and invite them to lunch. We take the next step and invite them into our homes. We take the next step and ask them, hey, do you want to get coffee this week? So, Let's normalize sharing our life and sharing our homes with each other. Let's be hospitable to one another. And let's begin to weave our lives into one another. Because this is our call from Jesus. And, and let me just dispel any, any fears. 
or, or misunderstandings. You know, discipleship is not a biblical principle to keep Christians busy. No, it's a command. And it's a way that we are called to persevere. Because as we get involved in each other's lives, do you know what happens? We begin to understand one another. We begin to learn more about what we struggle with, what our fears are, what our sins are, what our doubts are, what our uncertainties are. We begin to learn about, about we get, we, parenting questions come up, concerns about work. You know, look, there is a wealth of wisdom in this church, and what I'm calling us to do is to invest that wealth into one another. Share the wisdom that you have with the other members of this church. And friends, can I encourage you to prioritize Bethany, prioritize this church. I love parachurch ministries. I love nonprofits. They're all good things, but those should be secondary to your investment at this church because we have committed to one another to carry on with one another and to see one another make it to the end. Prioritize this local church because Paul's call for unity in this text is addressed to a local church for the advancement of these people. And, and Paul's word for us here at Bethany is the same. Join together and follow one another and be an example. So it's important that we care for one another. It's important that we look out for one another. Because if we do, if we do these things, if we pursue, pursue these things, we will guard each other against those who are enemies of the gospel. Look at verses 18 and 19. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So we can say that those who are mutilators of the flesh, that back up in verse 2, are the same people as those who are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction because their minds are set on earthly things. And friends, it is with tears that we watch our friends walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It is not bitter. It is not vindictive. We are defined by our compassion and our love for one another to weep and mourn as those walk in opposition to the work of the gospel. But we have to be on guard. Though we weep with tears, we cannot walk with them in their opposition. We must allow the Lord to take care of it. But this is why we must know each other. This is why Paul gives the exhortation to follow him and to follow each other because we need to be able to notice when someone is drifting, when someone is slowly slipping away and call them back to continue walking with Christ. We can't save ourselves. We can't save each other. But friends, we can help each other follow Jesus. We can encourage one another to hold on. Now, if you're not a Christian, I've been speaking mostly to the Christians this morning. What I want you to hear is this last point, the absurd gospel of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, what I'm picking up on is that the phrase gospel means good news. So what I am saying is that there is some absurdly good news about the good news Friends, what Paul wants to make clear to you and what I hope I have been making clear this morning is that no matter your pursuits, no matter your desires, they all fall short of satisfying and of earning satisfaction with God. 
so you might accomplish all of your dreams, all of your goals. You're going to fulfill all your desires. But all of those things are worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. See, because you are sitting here this morning like all of us. You are looking for satisfaction from this life. You're looking to fulfill unmet desires. Those might be desires for a spouse, desires for wealth, desires for power. You have desires that you're seeking to meet. But what Jesus wants you to hear is that he meets all of your desires and he satisfies them. You want to acquire a spouse? Jesus is a better spouse. You want to acquire all the wealth in this world? Jesus is far more precious than gold. Have you gained power or influence in this life? Jesus is stronger and his power never ceases, whereas one day you're going to retire and your power is gone. Jesus never loses power. He will fulfill every desire that you have, but maybe not in the way that you imagine. Maybe he does not give you the things that you want. See, but, but what he's calling you is to, to acknowledge that he is Lord, that you are giving up your earthly pursuits and pursuing him. Because the good news, the absurdly good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and died for us. Though we were sinners, we had nothing to offer. Jesus died so that we could live. The gospel says that our sin deserved eternal punishment. But Jesus took our sin when he died for us. And he died as a perfect sacrifice. And if we believe in him, and if we trust in him, and if we give our lives to him, we can have life with him for all eternity. We will say with Paul that all is counted as loss. If you want to talk about this more, I would love to talk about it more with you. Please find me after the service. Come and talk to me. Let's set up a time to get together and, and talk about the life, wor- the worth of Jesus Christ and the life that you can have in him. Church, the last piece of absurdity in our passage for this morning is not only do we gain Christ and all the blessings that are found in him, but we have a new citizenship. Look at verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Ah, friends, we don't have to wait for this citizenship. We are now citizens of God in this world. And we are together as a church, a, a little community of citizens of heaven one day, one day, the Lord's going to return and all creation will be transformed. All creation will be finally and fully under his control and we will all live as citizens of heaven. <sighs> Friends, brothers and sisters, this gospel is absurd. It is so good. It is such good news. And yet the Lord gives it to us freely. He blesses us fully with it. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks this morning because you have given us yourself. 
Jesus, we offer nothing in our salvation, and you offer everything. All our works, all our troubles are nothing in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Father, this morning as we come to you to partake in communion, we pray that we remember that we do this in in remembrance of you. In remembrance of you, Jesus, we partake. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would remind us of that this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.